The Bob Murphy Show, episode 292. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show Today, my guest is Adam Heyman, who is a, I'm reading from his official bio here, a semi-retired 30-year veteran of the professional poker world and has been a small L libertarian even longer. The COVID hysteria and associated government overreach moved him to get more politically active. Already a member of the Libertarian Party, in 2021, he sought and obtained a place in leadership in the Libertarian Party of Nevada. In 2023, he joined the Libertarian National Committee as Region 1 representative. Good region. Heard a lot from those folks. Adam lives in Las Vegas with his beautiful wife, three pampered cats, and several enormous piles of books. So Adam and I are going to be talking about all sorts of stuff here, but we do start with poker. That is his area of expertise. And I was a a gambler back in high school. And then some of you may identify with this. We couldn't wait till we grew up and had real jobs so we could go to the casino and you know bet real money. And then when we grew up and got real jobs, we realized, whoa, I don't want to lose $200 moving some cards around. That's crazy. So we talk about that, and then we get into some deeper, more philosophical and even metaphysical concerns. Adam's one of my favorite people. Got to know him well. He and his wife were on the Contra cruise, and Tom and I got to know them well there. Fun guy, smart. He's a big guy, too. Here's my conversation with Adam Heyman. Adam, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Good to talk to you again, Bob. Well, a lot has transpired since we last spoke. I want to return first to an area. I would have mentioned this in the bio, but just for people at home, explain your credentials when it comes to poker. I've been playing for a long time. I started to pick it up seriously in the late 80s, 89 or 90. We all played when we were kids around the, the card table or whatever, but in a serious way in casinos, I started playing in about 89. I'm curious. What game do you actually play? Because there's different variations of poker. Sure. I started playing seven-card stud, but I very quickly made it a point of pride that I would learn to play every game. (laughs) So I could go anywhere in the country and just scout around and see the best game in the room and be able to sit down without any fear and, and play that game. When I picked up the game, the big bet games, Pot Limit Hold'em and No Limit Hold'em, were almost dead. So I was playing Limit Stud, Limit Hold'em, Limit Omaha, high-low stuff. And then when poker caught on again because of the ESPN slash Chris Moneymaker phenomenon and poker just exploded, it was no limit that exploded. So I got really into those games now too. So I think I can play anything. I enjoy playing mixed games the most, which are a rotation. You change which game you're playing every eight or ten hands or every orbit or whatever, which means you get to play really funky games as they get invented, like all the drama ha variations and you know, just anything. Sometimes we'll just let people make up games on the spot. And if you're a parent trying to teach your kids they're playing Go Fish and then they start playing other stuff, crazy eights and whatever, and then you're going to teach them poker, is five 
card draw is that, like is that the name of it? Is that still like the standard just to understand like that the rules are and what which hand beats what? First of all, shame on you, parent, because uh, poker is a gateway drug to all sorts of horrible gambling <laughs> vices. But yeah, that's fine. The original poker game that you would have heard of or seen in westerns is five card draw. And yeah, you'll get a chart and show what hands beat what hands and play a few hands for funsies and you'll get a, a basic sense of the odds, things that you shouldn't draw to or you shouldn't at least draw to at the wrong price and fundamental strategies and how to play the game. Yeah, that, that's a great one to start. But contra opinion is that uh, every poker game they'll ever see on TV or in the movies is going to be Texas Hold'em. So maybe you want to start with that instead. I don't know. A little bit of question of style. Like with the Star Wars movies, to me, you oh, you absolutely have to show someone the middle three first and then the first three, and then some might argue, and that's where you stop. But, and others that I've seen make the case, well, technically, what if you showed somebody in terms of chronological or in the universe chronological order? In other words, the only way I understand Texas Hold'em is because, is oh yeah, I originally grew up with five-card draw, and then now I'm learning Texas Hold'em as an addendum but you're saying you could just as well do it the other way around. Is it, can you, you maybe certainly just, could, but that the analogy has a correct answer. And it is, yes, you watch those movies in the order in which they were made. And then when you want to mm -hmm. go back for a second or a third viewing, you can just watch them chronologically for variety. I know too, like in physics, there was a thing that typically the way it's taught is you teach me mechanics, like Newtonian physics, and then you teach like the Bohr model of the atom, and then da, 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 and you start doing quantum. And I know Richard Feynman at least toyed with the idea of just teaching. Like, in other words, it's, oh, we teach them what we don't think anymore and then show them, now here's what we currently think. And that stuff we just taught you last semester, throw that out, that's wrong. And so he thought, why are we doing that? Like, aren't we giving kids the wrong intuition? I think he said, I think he determined that experiment didn't work. That no, for whatever reason, and maybe there's a reason that like historically. I think like, there probably is a reason. Mm -hmm. I think in almost any discipline, it makes a whole lot of sense to learn the history of the development of the discipline. I don't think it's an accident that empirically it doesn't quite work to start with what we think, what the modern version is. I think it makes sense to go through your intuitions and the intuitions of, of the species, if you want to put it that way. I, th I think there's mm -hmm. something to learning something the way man learned it. Last one, and then we'll get into the fun dispute. Let me put it this way. Is it possible you could have two poker players and one guy is better at five-card draw, whereas the other guy is better at Texas Hold'em? Of course. Okay, and then if someone said to you, okay, so in your judgment, who's the better poker player? Would you say, oh, yeah, because one game, to me, more distills down the truth. You, you get the question I'm trying sure. to get at. Some games are simpler and some games are more complex. Like a very famous poker player, Doyle Brunson, used to call No Limit Texas Hold'em the Cadillac of poker. And it was because it embedded so many gambling concepts and strategical concepts so deeply. It has everything mm -hmm. in there. Or you can imagine a poker game that's as simple as there's only three cards in the deck. A deuce, a seven, and, a, and an ace. And you're, you're trying to see, you, then it's heads up and you just deal out two cards to eat or one card to each person and then throw the other one away and then you start betting which card do you have which card do i have that's a pretty simple game whereas mm -hmm. the more betting rounds you have and the more ways to win for example if you've got a high low version or just a, a one putt there's ways to make the game more complex and less complex so the answer is yes and tech no limit texas hold'em is arguably the most complex game especially when the stacks are deep so the betting size 
and the pot odds. There's a lot going on. Okay. That was the sense I got from other people. Like I, I've never, I think, explicitly asked somebody that, but that was the sense I got that people in the know, just like how p- people who are big drinkers, like, oh, scotch is this, and that you're, certainly everyone agrees you're not going to drink wine coolers, but they can all have their drink of choice. And I got the sense that, yeah, for poker players, Texas Hold'em was like the pure essence of poker and maybe five card draw only captured some of the elements of what's involved in true poker. I think that's that- true, but. You can go really deep in just about any flavor. Like all of these games look pretty simple on the surface, just the mechanics. But as you Mm. start really diving deeply into strategy variations and the way to play the game deeply, especially as you start taking into account the countermeasures employed by your opponents, all of these games get pretty complex pretty fast. Even that three card Mm. game that I, that I mentioned to you, like rock, paper, scissors can be, a complex game when it gets into psychology and rhythm and stuff like that, right? And that's as simple mm-hmm. a game as you'll ever find. Yes. Um, okay, let me change it up a little bit. So you're, let's say you're at a house party and there's some guys, there could be women involved too. It's just most of the parties I went to, there were no girls. So that's why I'm We know, Bob. We know. I know. So you go in there and there's a bunch of guys sitting around playing cards and they're like hey adam come on you jump in we got an extra chair here jim just left we cleaned them out huh come on sit down and they don't know who you are really they, they know your name's adam i guess in the story and you're just you're you say hey, me i'm gonna join a second and you first of all would you first just watch them play a little bit just to see what you're dealing with or would you just sit down right away and then if you do watch them for a second what is it you're looking for just to get a sense of is there anybody good at this table that kind of thing First of all, I'm only going to entertain the question because you already stipulated that there's no women at this party. So yeah, okay, I'll sit down and play. Otherwise, no. And I'm pretty cocky. Hang on. Because you want to flirt with the women or you don't want to take women's money? Because it's a terrible party and (laughs) (laughs) there's anything else going on. I don't want to go to work, so to speak. Okay, I got you. But yeah, I'm pretty cocky. I'd probably just sit down, assuming that at the very worst, I could fight these people to a standstill. And then... You can usually spot a good game versus a bad game in seconds. You can see whether there's a lot of action, whether the people are happy, animated, having fun, or whether they're miserable and dour and quote-unquote trying to play good. Oh, okay. So part of it is you just decide, is this going to be worth an hour of my time? Like, I don't want to be miserable. Like, even if you end up winning, if everyone's going to be mad and sulking. And it's less profitable. A game that's not fun is almost always less profitable. A good game to make money in mm-hmm. is going to be fun for everybody involved, even the losers. Okay, because if you weren't having a good time, you would get out once you were down $100 or whatever their limit, whereas if you're having a great time, you might yeah. justify staying longer. Remember, when this game was invented, it was a recreation, right? You want to play mm-hmm. with people for whom this is recreation, not for whom this is how I pay my bills. Right, right. Okay, so you want it to be fun. You're sitting. You you want people to feel good about the fact you're taking their money. I like that. You should run for office. No, so, I shouldn't. Okay. The <laughs> so, things okay. I've so, said, Bob. The things I've said. Yes. Yeah. I didn't say you would win. I just said you should. <laughs> okay. So you're doing it, and now, but yeah, let's just say. And I get how if you're pretty good, it'd be, if somebody says, "Hey, Bob, this guy's talking about the Federal Reserve. Come here." I'm probably not going to be. Like, Hang on, let me see who it is. Like I, I'm probably willing to just jump right in. But so, w- what would you look for though if you were? Or let's change. Let's say you're at a casino, okay, and there's a table with some a high limit, and there and the people are playing. 
and you're trying to decide if you want to sit down or not, like, do you look for a moment and just try to get gauged, like to see, am I going to be the best guy at this table or? I wouldn't worry about that. I would look for stack sizes to see if there's enough money on the table to, to win. And then you'd want to see if people are playing more hands than is optimal. If there's action, people are staying longer in hands through more betting rounds than is optimal. A good game versus a bad game is just obvious. You can see it in seconds. It's like night and day. Okay, so just elaborate on that a little bit more. You're saying you'd see a table. Let's say I wander past a table, Mm -hmm. and I see the cards come out and the betting start, and then I just see a parade of people folding after the big blind. Fold, fold, and the guy on the button raises, and then the small blind folds, and the big blind calls, and the flop comes out, and it goes check, bet, fold. I'm like, okay, that's a crap game. (laughs) You've got no action going on whatsoever. You want multiple people calling pre-flop, multiple people calling on the flop, Loose versus tight is the gambling term. You want a loose game, usually. You can beat a tight game too, but loose is easier and it's more fun. Okay. That people are being more liberal. They're more willing to risk their chips at various stages. And hence, if you have the the winning hand in that round, then... You said a mouthful there, Bob. As in all areas of life, being liberal is a mistake. Okay. I don't mean that, folks. I don't mean that. No, I know. know. Okay, good. So... That's all prelude to establish your bona fides. All right, let me read. So the backstory, folks, is, I don't know, Adam, was it in a Laura Murphy interview, like a, a typed thing, or was it a, a live audio thing? Where I know I've asked you this before, and we went through it, but then recently someone had me go through it again, and he, like a guy who had also been a professional poker player, and he was being more diplomatic and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, so we re-evaluated, re, uh, or we, we revisited this. Yeah, I remember okay, you talking so, about it in a Laura Murphy thing. For sure. So Robert Redford's character is this guy, Jack. It's W-E-I-L. I don't know if it's wheel, whale. I don't know. And he says, so this is the dialogue from the movie. He goes, hey, I know politicians, okay? I play cards with them. The premise, he's down in Havana, and he's a professional card player. I play cards with them. And I love to because they're easy to beat. It's the only place an ordinary man can beat a politician. I think I ought to join my friends. So he's getting ready to let go. And this guy, Bobby Durant, says, it was good of you to take the time. And then somebody else Arturo Duran says, why are they so easy to beat? Referring to the politicians. And, and Jack Wheel says, because sometimes in poker, it's smarter to lose with a winning hand so you can win later with a losing hand. And politicians can never quite believe that because they want the power now. So again, the money line that Adam and I are probably going to spend far too long analyzing is <laughs> because sometimes in poker, it's smarter to lose with a winning hand so you can win later with a losing hand, right? So it's a real quick thing, and they just go, and it sounds very profound. And yet, when I saw that or heard it, it didn't sit right with me. And I was thinking about it, and then I was talking about it with my brother, who's also my brother's better at cards than I am. And we were analyzing it, and it didn't quite, even though it sounded like it was profound, I don't think it makes sense. And so what's your reaction, Adam? Yeah, it's nonsense. Now, there's obviously a sense in which he's saying something that's true. Like, there's all sorts of reasons why politicians would be really bad at poker, because they have the character defects you commonly find in politicians. They're egomaniacs. They've got, they're probably power mad a little bit, uh, which will give them high time preference. And so he's probably saying things that are true, but then that example he gives just doesn't make any sense at all. There's no particular reason to lose with a winning hand just for the sake of losing with a winning hand. And I can't imagine how it would set you up to win one later, except in very contrived situations. 
Like I was going to say, you watched Rounders before, right? So there's this, the famous scene with Teddy KGB in the Oreo and he shows off his tail and Mike catches it and doesn't lose a big hand. He was supposed to lose. And maybe if you knew for sure, if you called that he would know why you were calling is that he, you've picked up on his tail, then maybe you wouldn't want to okay. do that for a small pot. Maybe you'd wait for right, a big right, one, right. but he's not talking about that. And in fact, in the movie, I found it and watched it last night. It was really difficult to find, but I did. There's only one scene. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. super hard to find. I probably broke some federal laws. There's only one scene because they show a lot of poker hands in the movie and they're all pretty interesting. And in one, I don't know if you remember the film, but he's down in Havana trying to hustle up a big high stakes poker game. And hopefully the casino is going to back him and he's going to finally make his big score. And he gets down there and the guy's running the joint says revolution is here. And all the factions behind Batista are making it so that nobody wants to gamble. Everybody's too nervous. And to prove him wrong, Robert Redford goes across the street into this podunk casino who's not even spreading poker, hustles up a small stakes game, and then by the end of the evening, it's morphed into this super high stakes game. And the guy who's running the casino across the street walks over and, oh, I guess you were right, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he sets up a super low stakes five-card draw game. And he gets himself in a spot where he's got three kings. And the guy bluffs him on the end and shows it. And so that's the only time in that whole movie where Robert Redford loses with the winning hand. Every other hand they show, it's just Robert Redford has a winner and he wins. Mm. Pretty simple game. And maybe the script writer was probably just an idiot. He was looking for something fancy to say to make Robert Redford Mm. look suave and sophisticated gambler. But there's a sense in which, yeah, you have to get bluffed sometimes. If you literally... (laughs) like the old gambling joke is you'll see a guy outside the casino with a tin cup begging and his sign says i play poker and i've never been bluffed if you're always calling guess what that's a bit of a leak and you're going to go broke pretty quickly so there's a sense in which you don't want to get married to your hand and maybe if they're trying to say politicians get too married to an idea or something so they can never i don't know maybe but for the most part it's just silly like going back to the rounders example if you've spotted somebody's tell all you have to do is call. The guy doesn't know you called because you spotted his tell. Mm. We call for all sorts of reasons. Usually people call. Yeah, I think... Uh, okay, okay. The answer is no. That line is nonsense. doesn't make any sense. Okay, you said a lot there. Let me unpack. So, yeah, I like the idea... Because there was something... Did you ever read about, Adam? Apparently in World War II, the U.S. and British had cracked the Japanese encryption for their naval whatever telegrams or whatever. And so they knew, I can't remember the details, but like they knew that they were going to attack some small base or something, a convoy in the Pacific. And they didn't respond because they didn't want the Japanese to know that they had cracked their code. So they let some of their sailors get killed waiting for, you know, let's wait for a better opportunity to really exploit the fact that we're reading. Cause they knew if they know that we know they're going to just change their encryption. And so we don't want them to know that. And so they did something and, and they also, what did they do? They did something clever. Like they, they faked, they said like their water distillation in like some Philippines Island or something was wrong. And so then the Japanese, when they communicated that the Americans figured out what their code word was for that island or something like that anyway this my story is 50 percent true folks the spirit <laughs> so anyway so you're saying there could be a similar you can imagine something sure. like that in poker where right if you 
realize somebody's, I guess the thing would be, yeah, if, if you had like a pair of tens and then you realize the guy was completely bluffing, you might not want to call because if he then knew you made the wrong play, given what you were holding and what you, the information you had about my hand, then he would say, oh crap. Did Let I me give you a real story just to yeah. cement the point you're saying. Cause you're right. Like okay. if I was cheating yeah. and I could literally mm-hmm. see your whole cards, I would not win all the hands that I could win because it would just become obvious. And in fact, right. I'm not going to give you the details, but cheaters have been found out because they did that. Like you'll have situations where a guy's running a bluff with a four five on a board that is five, six, jack, queen, and then a king. So he ends up bluffing the whole way with a straight draw and then just bluffs on the end. And you've seen people, this was in the online days, calling him down with like 10 jack or the equivalent. I forget the example mm-hmm. I just gave, but the point is call him down just because jack high beats five high. Whereas mm-hmm. there's no rational situation where anybody would do that if he wasn't actually being able to see your whole cards. And that's a similar scenario, right? If I've cracked your codes and you don't think they're cracked, then I can see your whole cards. So mm-hmm. even though it's bad for morale to get your own soldiers killed, you can definitely see why strategizing for the war, you can make an argument for doing just that if you're going to mm-hmm. win some bigger military objective later. Okay. Sorry, Trooper. All right. Sorry, Trooper. Couldn't help you. <laughs> in fairness, I think it was just the people in the Navy. <laughs> Easy, man. Um, Easy. Okay. I like how you're conceding. Yes, theoretically, but you, right, you're, as you're saying, that doesn't seem to be what they're getting at in that anecdote or that, that line of dialogue. It's, and I like how you're saying the overall principle is correct. I was like Mark Spicksnagel in his book talks about roundabout investing and the, the motto he got from his mentor was you got to love to lose. That's like Spitznagel's whole strategy is you, you have little loss, like, cause he would buy out of the money options. So you have little losses day after day. And then when the market crashes, you make 10,000% or something. And so the general principle of be willing to suffer losses for a while and then have a big score. Sure. But you're just saying the way they're motivating it is to say sometimes lose with a winning hand as if that somehow gives you an edge down right. the road. And so let's doesn't. walk through, <laughs> because this is what my brother and I said, I want to get your take is I think what the script writer who presumably isn't a poker player had in mind was, oh, if you actually could win and somebody like you, the other guy's raising in that you actually have a better hand, but you fold and let him win. So you lost with a winning hand. Now, down the road, when you go to bluff, you're more likely to win because of what you did before. I think that's what they had in mind, but my brother and I were thinking through that. No. No, because when you actually have the better hand and he raises, and whether you call or raise him back, you and then you show, you would want I had the winning hand, yeah. he's not going to conclude, oh, this guy bluffs a lot. You're not bluffing. I have the winning hand. So For down the sure. road, if you do want to bluff... The fact that you won with a legitimately winning hand doesn't mean. There's two ways we can. There's two ways we can steal money. Yeah, couldn't it be taking what you're saying, what I'm saying, and and smushing them together? That what if technically you do have the winning hand? You don't know that you do. Let put this way: you think the other guy could be. You know he could be bluffing, and so you're going to fold because you're playing the odds, and. So couldn't it be that, oh, yeah, statistically, I know sometimes I am folding with a winning hand, but that gives me credibility that the guy knows I'm conservative. So down the road, if I am really bluffing with nothing, 
the fact that I'm being no. safe earlier. No, there's a disconnect there. The first part you said is that's true is that you can't be calling all the time. You call all, so mm-hmm. you're going to be folding the winning hand sometimes, and that's just a matter of you playing the correct percentages, like the street beggar <laughs> with the sign. Right, right. You call all the time, you lose. But if you're going to want to bluff in the future and have it mm-hmm. be credible, how many times you call doesn't matter. The factor is how aggressive are you? How, much, how many times do you bet? You want him to think you're super tight. So, for example, if I fold 20 hands in a row, 100 hands in a row in any game, and then all of a sudden I look down at my cards and I push my whole stack in, I'm going to be believed. Everybody's going to fold. Because obviously I've established the credibility by just sitting there and folding and never betting that I must have aces. What else could I have? So it's not calling that gives you credibility for future bluffs. It's not being that aggressive. It's not betting that much. You follow? Your liberal calling isn't going to make you uh, not believed when you bet. Your bets are different than your calls. They're they're perceived differently. And folks, the point of this is not to see whether the Havana quote is right or not. The point is for me to really understand <laughs> poker. Like <laughs> we're just using that as a springboard. So I just want to understand what you're saying. You just said somebody who folds a hundred times in a row and then bets it all. Most people are going to think I'm not touching that. Go ahead and let them take the pot because probably this guy is not bluffing. Right. Sure. So to me, the response, so that to me seems to vindicate the Robert Redford quote, except I would just say in the long run, it wouldn't be worth it to do that. Like you're throwing away too much money by folding a hundred times in a row. You are for sure. Yeah, you are. Okay. So that we're, but we've now we've pushed at first we were claiming, no, this quote is utter craziness. There's no advantage whatsoever from you losing with a winning hand to build up credibility to later be able to win with the losing hand. And now it just sounds like we're saying the only kind of scenario where that would really make sense, it would be a bad idea. Well, it doesn't even follow the quote anyway, because I just generated a small pot that I won. He's talking about winning a big pot with a losing hand. That's why the politicians are so dumb, right? They don't understand that sometimes you got to lose a small pot with the winning hand so that you can later win a big pot with the losing hand. This is hard for me to construct a scenario where that makes any sense. Yeah, I think you and I are saying the same thing. That, yes, you could imagine if you put in enough effort on the front end and and throw away enough hands, then you're probably going to win later down the road. But the more sure you are that your bluff is going to work by building up a longer string of hands you just threw out, then the less advantageous it is for you to do that. It's just that he's... could be some... The script writer is just disconnecting stuff. Like if a guy bets and you call and you have the winning hand, it doesn't really say anything about how he's going to react to you bluffing later. Yeah, I think that was the point my brother and I had come to that if you're, yeah, like you're saying, there's a difference between raising back. But yeah, if you just That's call it. and you throw it and, and you win because you had a better hand, that doesn't make people say, oh, this guy's more likely to bluff. Exactly. Now. Like just, no, exactly. he wasn't bluffing. <laughs> right, so, exactly. Okay. Okay, I think we've probably plumb the depths of that one line of dialogue. But again, I do not question the people, the, the woman falling for Robert Redford in that movie, because I'm not saying I want to kiss him, but if he invited me to the prom, I would go with him. That's what I'm saying. He's looked very dapper. He's very handsome. I did. I found the movie unbelievable because I couldn't believe he was willing to throw his life away for this chick. It's, it's been a while since I've seen nuts. <laughs> was she an American also in Havana? Or she was, was she an a- American. 
she'd married, not a Cuban, she's an American, who ended up married to some Cuban aristocrat who was in support of the guerrilla Marxists. And so, therefore, her husband gets captured by the Batista's goon squad, and she ends up getting captured and tortured. And, and yeah, I just... Oh, in the movie, are the Marxists the good guys? Uh-huh. It's Hollywood, uh, Bob. Yes. Yes, they are. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Can't they have a movie where the people that ally with the old guy, like the, they did that in The Godfather too, right? That the, was it Roth? Is that the guy that I Michael so. goes head to head yeah. with? And he's like, finally a government, what does he say? A friendly government or something like that. And they want to work with them. And then, ah, these damn rebels come in and ruin everything. It's so simple because right. it's not like the Batista regime was good, but can't these script writers come up with a scenario in which both, <laughs> all actors are bad except your stars? Yeah. All right. Speaking of everyone being bad except our heroes, let's talk about the LP for a moment. <laughs> Can you explain? You actually do have an actual connection to the LP per se, whereas I've given talks to some of their events, but I'm not formally part of the LP. What is your official connection? Yeah, you say that, Bob, except everybody knows your name and nobody knows mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, though. It, 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 you're lower on the list as far as the government when they figure out Ooh, who's yeah. going to the FEMA good camps. Good point. Yeah, I've been a small L libertarian for over 30 years, uh, but not that politi politically active until, uh, I guess it was just before COVID, I decided to join the LP for different reasons here in Nevada. And I've gotten into leadership here. And then recently, through various things that happened, political things, our region, there's a regional structure in the Libertarian National Com Committee. And so we lost our regional rep that he resigned, and I was selected by the chairs of the various state affiliates. So now I'm on the LNC as the region one representative, a small cog in a large wheel, so to speak. Okay. But you're all playing your important parts and all right. So let's talk a little bit. And obviously if we brush up against something where you have to be diplomatic, I understand politics is a strange beast. I announced recently on Twitter, I said, just to not confuse people, anyone who's running for president for the LP, I troll the heck out of just to get them ready for the media hazing in case they start getting, because people get, what do you got against Josh? And I said, I'm not anything against him, but he's running for president and I'm going to troll him. That's how, that's how I am. Robert Murphy, the yeah. altruist. That's what we call yeah. you. you just do you ask a bird not to fly? Really? <laughs> okay. So what had happened? Dave Smith was spearheading the so-called takeover. And a lot of people thought he was going to announce that he was running. And a lot of people who went and did that, we're thinking, yes, let's go get prepare the ground so that when Dave runs, he's a great spokesperson. And then he recently said, for various reasons, yeah, I'm not running for president. And so that left a vacuum. And so now we've got different people that I see there, like, there's brewing battles between Joshua Smith and Michael Rechtenwald. And I know there may be other people jumping around. Go ahead. Just your, what's your overall commentary on, on how things are playing out at, the, at this moment? First of all, there are a lot of other candidates besides those two. Mike Termod and Chase Oliver and Lars. Ah, sorry, I forget that guy's last name. Over the three biggest I was aware of. But I think there's a total of 30, maybe 31. Just people who filed with the FEC to run for this position as a mm -hmm. libertarian. And who gets chosen will happen at the national convention next year in D.C. But I was on Team Dave just because I think he's a magnificent explainer of our principles. I think he could find a different vector 
or explaining libertarian political philosophy to all 330 million people on the planet, just to hit them right where they live and say the principles in a way that would make them understand and get it and feel like it was right. It was not only morally correct, but it was also practical. I just think he's a magnificent communicator, best I've ever seen. I agree that he, I would, like in terms of if somehow the Libertarian Party candidate was on a debate platform with the other party, I would much rather Dave do that than me. Heck yeah. And there's no. lots of reasons. One, obviously he's an amazing communicator. Having that stand-up comics timing and rhythm mm -hmm. and just practice to, to be that smooth really helps. And even better, I think it's great that he came from the left growing up as a kid, the same as I did, just because the libertarians are often perceived as just the extreme right wing of conservatism, which I've never mm -hmm. thought was particularly true. So, I, so when we're on the national stage, I just think it's really good to have that gear, to, like Scott Horton does to advocate mm -hmm. for libertarian policies by saying we are better to achieve your stated aims than your policies are, Democrats, and you can do the same thing to the right. But anyway, so I just think Dave has all the gears, as poker players say, and uh, it's really sorry that he won't be following through. I know a little about his family situation, and I totally get it. But yeah, we do still have some amazing other candidates. Oh, and I thought that Spike Cohen would have thrown his hat in the ring, and he still might. He's an excellent communicator also. And these other guys are all quite good, too. Mike Termat came to Nevada's state convention this year and gave a great speech. He's a good communicator. I don't know that much about the rest, but I do think we have some decently interesting candidates. But my own personal preference right now, that because I'm familiar with Michael Rechtenwald, and I was excited when I heard that he was going to go for it, too. I think he carries a lot of intellectual heft and cachet, and he too comes from the left in a very serious way. Super educated, written a million articles and books and given speeches. I don't know how his candidacy is going to gear up, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I know Dave's supporting him, so that goes a long way. Yeah, and with this stuff, too, like the disclaimer, folks, like I personally know Michael, and, and, and as you acknowledged, Adam. The reason I, I mentioned him and Josh is just I see them you know, more like Michael just said some things about name recognition and data, and then now Josh was starting his guerrilla warfare campaign against them on Twitter. So that's the only reason like those two jumped out at me is because I guess I follow people who are retweeting some of the stuff. But yeah, as far as Michael, I think you're right that what's interesting, the part, if he ends up being the candidate or the nominee, I think what his past as he used to be, he used to literally call himself a communist. And he was at NYU and then just started challenging some of the woke stuff still as a commie, like just saying, I don't think the students should be able to disinvite somebody who's coming to campus because the person's saying something they don't agree with. Now, it does occur to me to say, right, because real communists would just kill the guy. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but still, he started like it, it wasn't that he had his conversion and believe in free markets and then as an offshoot challenge the woke stuff. It was the woke stuff first that is a, an adult communist or Marxist that he started challenging it. And then apparently when they excommunicated him for cultural reasons, that's when he started doing more reading and, and switched over. So I do think that's an interesting story that my, and some people on the right who don't trust libertarians normally might be more interested in that, like to see that, oh yeah, this guy actually had a serious high paying academic position. He, he wasn't just some guy pumping gas somewhere who thinks the federal reserve is evil. And it just goes to show that you never know how the conversion 
like all libertarians for the most part or 99% of them were converted from something else mm. since most of the world is not libertarian for people who become them they have to they have a conversion story and yeah the left eating his own is a good conversion story just to have that cold water splashed in your face because you rejected the identity politics and the wokeism could make somebody as smart as Michael Reckenwald really review his whole situation and you're much more likely to have a book reading confirmed Marxist switch to libertarianism than you are just some random housewife Hillary voter because a Marxist yep. is interested in ideas and takes them seriously. And if they are persuaded that something in their worldview is self-contradictory or contradicts reality or human nature or something, they might just rethink everything. Whereas just your random reflexive Democrat or Republican voter, they're not persuaded by ideas, but because they don't really take them that seriously. It's not about that. It's just a team thing or a, it's a soft religion in, in a way. Yeah, I, it's funny. I said something very similar to what you just said back when I was in grad school. I was writing for the website antistate.com, and we were I had all these chat boards at the time. And I don't remember the exact quote, but yeah, I was actively debating with and communicating with anarcho-socialists at the time. And I said that, yeah, I, I think it's, I said, I have a better chance of converting an anarcho-socialist to Rothbardianism than a Mitt Romney supporter. I think it was yep. the, the line I said, <laughs> and for the reasons you're saying that at least if you're an anarcho-socialist, you're not worried about public opinion. You're not worried about holding ideas that most people think are weird because you already are doing that. And you know something's seriously wrong about the current system and that you're probably driven by a sense of injustice and people are getting screwed over. And so, yeah, to convert that person to a Rothbardian vision, it's more just saying, you got to just tweak the details. Your overall gut feeling is right. It's just here, let me help you think through to diagnose the situation or maybe even to other way say what the prescription is. Where, yeah, somebody who's like, yeah, this Team USA is pretty good, and the GOP, I like that, and okay, yeah. Ronald Reagan, government's not the problem or not the right. solution. Yeah. That's that interesting. You're not going to reach that person. Yeah, for sure. But it's interesting. I think us libertarians are always saying, it's our turn now. People are finally waking up. <laughs> but I really do think at this time, the response to COVID woke a bunch of people up. The, mo the current left, the modern left, looks nothing like the Democratic Party, if you were around in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s even, it's just shocking. It's largely the woke stuff and the extreme communist stuff. And it, we're getting a conversion on the right, too. Like, my next-door neighbor, a good friend of mine, I had my Ron Paul sign out in 2012, and he had his Mitt Romney sign out, and them's was fighting words. Mm -hmm. And he agrees with me on almost everything now. Because the last several years has really red-pilled a lot of right reflexive right-wingers on the nature of the state. They can't just reflexively think that the cops are good. If we didn't have them, we'd have chaos. They can't reflexively think everything the FBI and the CIA is doing is just how we keep our strong yep. country mm -hmm. anymore. It, the truth has just become obvious. And you're starting to see people's calve away from the statist iceberg in a libertarian direction. As much as I dislike the MAGA movement, a lot of those people are former GOP dieharders who are no longer so in love with the regime and they don't know what the right answer is necessarily, but they, they finally recognize the problem. And that's a huge first step. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I agree a hundred percent. And I've never said to a guest, I agree 60%. I don't know why that is. So <laughs> say something that's somewhat intelligent, but stupid. And then I'll say that. So it's, yeah, 
<laughs> right. I because I remember I talked to people who were big Ron Paul fans, and they had been radicalized by his what was it, the 08 campaign. Mm-hmm. And I talked to people, and they were telling me stories about, oh yeah, I went to the convention. I think this was like in the Northwest. I don't know if it was Washington state, but it it was something like that. And the people were telling me stories how basically they thought the system worked. And then they said, no, we went to the convention and they just changed the rule and they just blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the specific, but it was like that this was an adult talking to me, just saying they just stole it from him. Like he, they changed the rule and just made it so that we couldn't cast our vote for him. Or I don't remember that, but it was, they were scandalized. They couldn't believe what had just happened. And then that sort of opened their eyes like, oh, wait a minute. If the GOP at my local level or whatever regional, I don't know what the terminology would be, just did that to suppress what I know was our grassroots support for Ron Paul in there, that's happening around the country. They weren't necessarily saying he should have gotten the nomination, but they could see the dirty tricks that were played. And they were like, oh. And, And then I noticed too, like there's some outreach and you mentioned Dave Smith, like he's good at this to appeal to people who right now call themselves progressive Democrats to say, look what they did to Bernie Sanders, for yep. example. And RFK um, Jr. right now. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And to show that, no, there really is this coalition, this group that's in power, and it's not a right-left thing. It's something else nope. going on here, and that's a distraction. And yeah, I'm not for a Green New Deal, and I know you're not for getting rid of the IRS, but that's not really the the important thing right now, is that there's this group that pretends that we have a democracy and not even that I care about democracy, but you get the point that this is all a big farce. Yep. And so let's first agree on that. Yeah, I agree completely. I think the, uh, we've been fed a false narrative of left versus right. And I think you've got to slide that axis around 90 degrees because it literally is them versus us. It's statists versus the rest of us. The parasitism is from the political class. It's from the regime. And it's against all of us, and it shows up in a hundred different ways, uh, most notably the warfare and and what they do to our money. And if we don't wake up pretty quick, we're going to have a big problem. I'm with you. I would have lost that bet you lost a decade ago, too. I can't believe the currency hasn't collapsed already. It just boggles my mind. I guess the only saving grace of the Fed is that every other central bank currency is a nightmare, too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I was funny. I was just talking with someone earlier today. So folks, I don't want to derail what Adam and I are talking about right now with that, but yeah, I will put a link. I have given postscript because once there was significant CPI inflation after the 2020 stuff, a lot of people like on our team, Adam, were running around like, Oh gee, Krugman's an idiot. What'd you think was going to happen? And I was saying, yeah, but qualitatively the same stuff happened in 2008, nine, and you didn't see CPI officially do what it did. And I, so I'll put a link, folks, to my Mises University talk where I try to explain what actually was the, the difference between those two. How come it seemed like our Econ 101 worked this time around, but it didn't seem to work last time to explain it. Okay, now I know you had reached out to me, Adam, after some of my recent episodes, and you want to talk about deep thoughts, <laughs> things that were sort of stuff you do when you're in college and people are doing bong rips and you're sitting around talking. So do you want to start the ball rolling? Yeah. First of all, I'm going to change my name to Jack Handy and have these okay. deep thoughts. The folks at home, the best one ever of that was, it was this thing on Saturday Night Live where it was a deep thoughts by Jack Handy. And then we just see a guy talking. And my favorite one of you saw is Adam was, he goes, I've always been afraid of clowns. 
I guess it goes back to the time when I was a little kid and I went to the circus and a clown killed my dad. (laughs) It's deep thoughts. Folks, let's take a break from the action to remind you that this is a very unique podcast. Is it not? We talk about number theory, the nature of infinite sets. We talk about the Proud Boys convictions, about the January 6th riot at the Capitol building. We talk about intense theological issues, and later we're going to be getting into Molinism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism. And of course, there's some economics and libertarian theory thrown in just for fun. So if you want to see more of these episodes or just help support the cause, please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks for your support. Yeah, like I was saying in the when I reached out, I don't even know how to begin the conversation, but I have this massive problem with certainty in our species. And it's mm-hmm. an epistemological thing. I think people are just way too certain about the things they believe. They'll find themselves in situations where they feel like they're supposed to have some sort of firm opinion about something where they there's no way they could be having have an opinion. And you'll see it in the debate about the existence of God or not, or the existence of ghosts or aliens, whether there's a simulation that we live in, the matrix. You've talked about this a lot, but the errors made epistemologically in the economics profession, where they create these models based on obviously flawed assumptions and then forget that they created a model and and then shout down the real world for not conforming to their fictitious model. The climate change thing is a part of this. And I don't even know where to start, but I just think it's nuts that we insist on certainty when there's just no reason. Like, take the Russell Brand thing that just happened. You have people mm-hmm. are, that are just absolutely certain that he is as pure as the driven snow, and people that are absolutely certain that he raped a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand why we feel like we have to act like we know what the truth is when you couldn't possibly know. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. So yeah. And a couple of those, the climate change stuff for sure. When I, I think it was back in like 2007 that I started working for Institute for Energy Research and they assigned me to the economics of climate change beat, I guess you'd call it. And I dove into the, the IPCC's reports, big thick books and going through the same. And I conclude, look, it's not that it's a hoax. It's not that they're making this stuff up out of whole cloth, but the confidence with which they report these results to the public is way overstated was what my view at the time. And then I think things have even gotten worse since then when you see activists grabbing stuff. It was like layers. It was like a telephone game almost that you you had the underlying published peer-reviewed research that was very circumspect. And here's our models. And this leads us to believe that this may be an influence and da, da, da. And then that would get into the chapter summary would say something stronger And then there would be the technical summary of the whole report that was more over the top. And then there was the summary, I forget what they called it, but like executive summary for political officials or something like that, where it's like a one pager. And that was even more over the top. And then the newspapers would report on the IPCC latest volume and the headline was even further from. So it was a great little thing where they could come off saying, oh, UN's body says, we got to do such and such or we're all dead in 10 years. And if you challenged it, they would be like, oh, but it's peer-reviewed science. It was just this thing, this telephone game where each step of the way, more nuance was dropping off. And it was just this naked thing that obviously could not have survived the peer review process. And you also see it, that's like Nassim Taleb's, I know he's very 
lightning rod person lately, how he conducts himself on social media, but that was his long running stance. Heck yeah. And I like, and he summarized it well. He said he was at, this was like in his book, The Black Swan, like this is going way back, or no, maybe fooled by randomness, where he said he was like sitting around at like some fund and the people were saying, oh, what do you think is going to happen with the stock market next week? And everyone was just going around the table saying what they thought the number was going to be. And he got to him and he said, I don't want to just say a number. Like, I think it's more like, I think there's a 90% chance it's going to go up by blah, blah, blah. But I think there's a 10% chance it might go down. And that matters. Like, if you're just forcing me to pick a number, like what's the most likely thing it's going to be, that's hiding the volatility and we shouldn't conduct ourselves. And he was saying how. And there's a 100% chance. I have no idea what the percentages are because that's not how statistics works. Right. One of his greatest insights is that to look at a 70-year history of whatever market and then act like you've got all the data you can that you need to say what the odds are that something's going to happen in the future is insane. <laughs> You're missing a whole lot. That's what the, the whole black swan thing is. The thing that showed up that you had no idea was even there, that was even a possibility. Because your data set's mm-hmm. preposterously small, and it has to be. Yeah. I get that same argument when people... Like you're familiar with the, I think, Drake's equations about why it's a mathematical high probability that aliens exist somewhere. I think it's Drake, right? Um, We got X number of galaxies. What is that called? Fermi's, the other way to frame it. Fermi's paradox. That's the other one. Like if there's so many, how come they haven't, we haven't heard from them? Right. But the Drake equation is X number of galaxies, X number of stars, X number of habitable planets. And therefore, the odds are that there's life out there. We don't know what the odds are. We have exactly right. one data point right here on this planet. That's not enough to tell you the odds of anything. But people trot out numbers with large uh, zeros before the decimal point and act like they're talking about science. It's madness. It's pure confusion. It's a conflation of, of what probability even is. The simulation argument gets a, a very similar foundation. Humans or creatures like us like to build false realities and as we do more and more of them they'll get better and better and what are the odds that we happen to be the original species that hasn't built a simulation yet i don't know (laughs) you don't have any at least with the life one you've got one data point and here with this one you've got zero you don't even know if you can create such a thing but you act like it's a probabilistic argument we talk ourselves into nonsense right and that showcases that what i was talking about with the climate change stuff because yeah i remember seeing headlines like scientists colon we now know we live in a simulation or, or something like that where they were yeah. science proves you know mathematically near certainty and and yeah you go look at the thing and right they make some assumptions and blah 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 and if this is true then out pops this thing but new study shows like headlines are bullshit. yeah <laughs> okay so so i i do like that and you're right like it's you don't see too often Somebody like Joe Rogan interviewing somebody and asking the guest something and the person just saying, yeah, I don't really, I haven't looked into that. I don't really have a strong opinion that one way or the other. Like you barely ever hear someone say that. Certainly not somebody running for political office. No, you have to have a view on everything. You know, if more did, more would get my vote. No, you're right. There's all sorts of reasons why people don't do that. It makes them look, I guess, weak or something. I, I look at it the exact opposite. I think it's a sign of strength to admit the either the limits to your knowledge to have some idea of what the depth and the breadth of what you know is and more importantly what you don't know and there's supposed to be wisdom there and when you know that you don't know everything you put more 
stock in principles, like the principle that it's bad to murder people. (laughs) Maybe you don't know for sure whether you should kill somebody in every single... Anyway, don't bother yourself with all that. Just stick to the principle. It's bad bad to kill people, so don't do that. It's bad to steal. And yeah, and sometimes it turns out you're in Les Mis and you do have to steal, but for the most part, no. Stick to your principles. Don't steal. <laughs> right. And it's, I know I've, I've started using it. So my thing I, I noticed when I was at NYU as a grad student that in the seminars, you know, there'd be some outside academic would come in to present a paper. And this is how higher academia works in case you don't know, folks, when someone's working on something often, they'll go to the different workshops or whatever they call them at nearby school, or they might even fly somewhere and go to a different place if it's, if the venue's appropriate and they'll go and give their presentation of their paper. And then everyone sitting around the table will give feedback. And then that's part of the process when you're getting it ready to then go publish the thing. And I noticed that there were different styles that people would have. And the people, the economists, I independently had come to the conclusion like, oh, no, these guys on the faculty are really sharp. Like they are all mainstream people, but like, oh, yeah, this guy's a very precise thinker. And I can go and argue about line 18 of this proof with the guy and we'll go... Whereas this other guy, no, he's a blowhard. He's there's no point in even talking to him. He's just fuzzy, and he'll he would tell me something that wouldn't even be true because he doesn't care enough about being real precise. And I noticed the way those people handled themselves in the seminars were different. That the ones that I thought were really sharp when someone would come and present a paper, they would ask clarifying questions. They would say, "Yeah, on page twelve here, you say such and such. Now, is that were you assuming convexity, or could that be any function?" And the guy would say what it was. Whereas the other people would be like, "Oh yeah, you wrote this, but." Didn't so-and-so show in 97 that actually this is only true under these conditions? And like trying to blow the person up. And I realized that, yeah, someone who goes through being humble and always asking for clarification, saying, I don't know, you've done more work on this, you tell me, over time, they're going to know a lot more stuff than somebody who, as of the time they were 30, thinks, no, I basically know everything, and if what you're saying disagrees with my framework, I'm just going to sit there and dismiss you as an idiot. You keep her mind open. That's funny. The series of questions you asked has given me a, a hypothesis. Let me run it by you. Okay. My major complaint is that the average Joe just feels like he's too certain, or I feel like he's too certain about things where he shouldn't be. But as you just said, with the climate change thing and the IPCC, there's this huge game of tele, uh, telephone from the people who are doing the actual work and then the people who broadcast that to the average Joe. And we live in a complicated world where You can't know everything, so you trust experts. And then like with the Joe Rogan thing you were just saying, nobody who's in the position of an expert is incentivized to get in front of the microphone on Joe's big platform and get asked Mm -hmm. a question about climate change and go, beats me, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Pass me that bong. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we have a problem that our leaders feel like they have to be certain. Our world is too complex. You have to trust the leader. So even though you're just some peasant who doesn't understand Latin, whatever that priest guy is doing up there mumbling around, you just take his word for it and go about your day. I don't know how you solve that problem, but maybe that's why we believe our elites and our elites are pretending to know stuff that just ain't. Yeah, I think there's a couple things involved. I wanted to say before I forget, I remember I was younger and I was seeing, I was watching some documentary on, I don't know if it was just like 60s music or if it was about Elvis in particular, and I know he was 50s too, but they are asking him about the Vietnam War. And, and they said, oh, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? And he just went, hey, man, I'm just an entertainer. And I think a lot of people were mad that he was like, oh, he was trying to like play it cool just to keep his sales up or whatever. 
But I actually thought that was a good answer. Like he was saying, what the heck do I know about Cambodia? <laughs> yeah, just, man. I get up yeah. there. Yeah. So I thought that was like, it, it was, it made sense strategically. Like just, yeah, don't say anything and you won't hurt your career. Whereas if you go one way or the other, you're going to alienate people. But also I thought that was a, a humble answer. Like that. Yeah. The only reason you're even talking to me is because I'm an entertainer. So why would you ask me, you know, you could say, do we got a, a song you're working on that you're coming out with next month? Okay. But to ask me about some, yeah, I love thing. that. I wish more of our entertainers would do that. And I think Ali did it even better, right? You know, those Vietnamese ain't never done nothing to me. <laughs> Why in the world would I go crawl the way across the world and try and kill some of them? Which, of course, set up George Carlin's bit about how they, they took away his boxing title or something. Yeah, it's it a good one. Saying, like, he beats up people for a living. And they say, <laughs> but I draw the line at killing people. They said, ah, if you won't kill those people, then we're not going to let you beat Can't up people. Beat them up, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was good. Okay, so yeah, so going back to what you were saying about maybe partly what's going on. R right, I think there's a thing where, let me put it this way. What I don't like, though, is if somebody say, oh, I don't have an opinion on something, or I trust this, what, let's say it's the CDC or the Federal Reserve, whatever, and then someone will say, yeah, but hang on, do you know there's dissenting views? Like, here, go look at this person's got a PhD in this topic, and blah, 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 and here's a 12-minute YouTube video explaining some of the problems with the so-called consensus. And then if the person just, I don't know this stuff, I, I got to defer to the experts. I don't know. And I've seen, so sometimes I feel like there's almost a false humility where it's more like I've already outsourced that mentally and I'm not going to deal with that. And I've seen people too, like I, I know some family members that have said things to me like that, like, no, I, when it comes, when it's election time, I do some research and then I vote for the right person. And then I don't really keep tabs on what the government's doing because I've done my part when it's like, if I'm trying to, this is back when I actually like thought, oh, the reason the world doesn't get better is because people just don't know. And let me just go explain stuff to people. And then realizing, no, there's something more going on. But anyway, that's one of the things where I think sometimes people just, they really don't, they tell themselves it's, oh, because I don't know. But it's more like, I don't want to know because if I knew my government was doing really awful stuff, I would have to do something about that. And that would be awkward. And I don't want to have to be in that position. Also, to give them a little credit, most of these sorts of things are going to be beyond their ability to understand them anyway, right? At some point, it comes down to a, which source do I believe? Because how can you actually fact check every single article that you read or argument that you read? There are persuasive okay, yeah. videos made about the flat earth theory. I've watched a well, documentary that said there's obvious that Michael Jackson diddled all those kids. And then I watched another documentary that made it perfectly obvious that he didn't. And it was a frame job. So mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. the fact that people, if people reflexively say, yeah, I'm not going to read those seven articles and watch that five hour video in their defense, it's, there's probably a lot of cases where, yeah, you could read all that and watch all that and still not know. Right. I do agree with that. And in fact, I may lose some of my subscribers on this one. <laughs> that was my stance with the 9-11 inside job stuff is that, of course, I was watching those because that's a good thing to know if that's true. I, I could maybe choose whether to publicize it or but And I was going through and looking at some of those. And it got to the point where I saw two guys who ostensibly both had PhDs in engineering. And yep. they were looking at the same footage yep. of the rubble falling or the buildings. And one guy said, that's free fall. And another guy said, no, it's not. Yep. And it was like, how am I supposed to, I knew enough of the physics and whatever to realize if one guy said, yeah, that's free fall. And another guy said, yeah, it is. But see, the reason that's happening, it's not because, you, 
then it's maybe the type I of pancaking you'd expect when the mass is right, on right. top of the blah blah. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. But when one set is free fall, and then the other one like had like a graphic superimposed, to sh- like showing the gra- the graphic falling faster than the building's floors, and saying, "See, it's not free fall." And so at that point, I realized, well, "How the heck am I supposed to?" <laughs> I would have to somehow independently determine from that footage whether it was free. How would I even do that? Right. So that was the point at which I and since. On the, I was thinking it through and saying, on the margin, since I philosophically object to the existence of the U.S. federal government, whether or not they planned 9-11 doesn't change much in terms of my view. Whereas if you're more of a conventional person, like, yeah, some mistakes were made. Our U.S. government's pretty good. For that kind of a person, then, yeah, to learn 9-11 was an inside job, if it were, Have I told would make you a my, huge uh, difference. For sure. Have I told you my, con- my real conspiracy theory? I don't, I don't really know. believe it, but... When Loose Change came out, and whenever that was, mm-hmm. 02 and or 03, that big, huge video that went viral and proved that the government was behind the Twin Towers falling behind 9-11, mm-hmm. I watched that for a while and then went down that rabbit hole that you just described and decided mm-hmm. I, I wasn't convinced or didn't know. It suddenly occurred to me that because everyone's starting to make these noises, the government was behind 9-11, the government was behind 9-11. Wouldn't it just be super clever if Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld created the loose change video? Because now, anytime somebody who's stu- now when Scott Horton says Ron Paul was right, it's our foreign policy over the last multiple decades that created the conditions by which these people want to commit this crime. It gets conflated in people's heads and they go, oh, you think the government's behind it? Just like the 9-11 conspiracies, you think the government blew up the buildings, right? It's like this weird, perfect cover where... You make an outrageous claim so that now any criticism gets lumped in with Alex Jones territory. I don't think that's true. Yes. It's just damn right. convenient. It is an interesting. <laughs> if yeah, I right, were an right. evil empire guy, I'd be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Muddy the waters of, of dissent. Yeah. Or at the very least. Yes, exactly. So yeah, coming in because, because clearly just to make sure the listener, I'm trying to make sure Adam, I don't lose all my subscribers. Obviously there's some weird stuff, very suspicious stuff like, the government sealing off the Twin Towers site and just carting all that stuff away and getting rid of it. It's like, whoa, this is a large crime scene. This is all evidence. Like, you want to just leave that and let invest it? And no, they just got rid of that stuff real fast as if they didn't want people figuring out what happened. So that, that's very suspicious. The whole Building 7 thing, I, right, that looks really weird to me. I can't but figure that one out. On the other hand, like I say, I technically, to be absolutely certain, would need to go take... not even like I have to go enroll in a program, but I would have to do a lot more studying of architecture and stuff. Because again, you do see some people with credentials saying, no, that could happen and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, technically I would need to do more research to see, but yeah, I get it. Prima facie, that looks really weird. And that's that's what supposedly happened. And that's the funny thing about credentials. You have them and so does Paul Krugman. So what do you do when you evaluate a guy with credentials? Right. And what's funny is, People on the left hearing you say that would be like, right, yeah, the one guy is a Nobel Prize winning revered economist. This other guy is this punk that hangs out on the internet. And, Give me the punk know. all day long. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've got all the elements. that There is tricky. I, I suppose, though, so you're right that I can understand why the average person would just say, what's the point of me going and delving into this? But on the other hand, I do want to say, I think on some of these topics, it is, what do I want to say? If you know how to parse the information, you can see whether it makes, like, just to change the thing, like, I've been doing research on 
for my work with Infinio, you, some people use whole life insurance and other people like to use index universal life to try to do things in terms of cash flow management. And so what I'll do is I'll go and watch the videos on YouTube from the people who are proponents of the opposite of what we do and my team to hear their, their, their best arguments for it. So at least I can get, so I'm saying you can do things like that and I can mm-hmm. see when people on my side are being a little bit slippery if somebody catches them to give a more nuanced view. So I'm saying, right, I understand that in some cases, like, yeah, ultimately you don't know what the answer is, but to get a, a framework or to, like the minimum wage debate is another example. Right. Like I think if someone reads my article on it, they can go click through and see, I'm trying to be fair and I'm showing, hey, when somebody like Krugman says, there's no evidence for blah, blah, blah hang on a second and I'll parse that out to be a bit bit clearer about, right, there's some papers that show a 10% increase in the minimum wage might not have a statistically significant, but that's far from saying if they doubled it, which from 725 to 15, then we have no reason to suppose like, whoa, those are different things, that kind of stuff. Let me, let me be clear. I was just (laughs) trying to steal, man, people throwing up their hands and saying, Mm -hmm. oh, gee, I don't know. But even though I'm against how much certainty people have, I wasn't advocating that you do that. I do think the right thing to do when you have an issue is to look mm-hmm. at it from every angle that you can possibly look at it from. Seriously, steel man, the things that you disagree with, go out and try and steel man that argument the very best way that you can and then see if you still think the other. Don't just throw up your hands. But in general, I think the problem is more on the other side where people are insisting that they know stuff that they just can't know. And it causes them to dig in their heels and follow some tribe and be resistant to evidence. And I don't know how to fix that. We're always trying to convince people that we're right and 90% of the world is wrong. And it's just really hard to do because they're certain that the government's not lying to them. And we think that they are for the most part. Yeah. yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. That's the thing. There are people, the, the people that I get frustrated with, it's not if somebody disagrees with me. Because like I said, for one thing, Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. Sure. So clearly, sure. yeah, when they do, th- when it's like, if I'm in, having an argument with somebody on Twitter, let's say, and recently, so Brad Palumbo tweeted about the Lauren, is it Bobart? I don't even know how you say her name. I think it's Bobart, uh, but I'm not sure. This, everyone knows what we're talking about. She was in the, the Beetlejuice show and she and her date got frisky. Okay. And so Brad Palumbo tweeted out a thing about like the overwhelming hypocrisy of this, this Christian right and da da da. And drag queen story. And so I said, yeah, she shouldn't have done what she did. For what it's worth, she apologized and broke up with the guy. Okay, whereas the people who are upset with Christians about Drag Queen Story Hour there, it's not like it was in a dark theater that was caught on night vision and some guys were, trans guys were were reading books to each other and there was a kid there and then they apologized for it and said never again. Like these are just different things. And I had people swearing at me and saying, oh, it's just because your hero got caught now you're changing your like as if i'm a they just assumed this is some big republican guy who loves lauren bobert and probably would campaign for her when it was like no this these people have no clue who i am or what's motivating me but yet because i mildly pushed back on brad saying this is the exact same thing as people anyway i'm just saying that stuff happens all the time where people are just so short like during the george w bush years if i complained about his plan to privatize social security People accuse me of being a Democrat, and I must have loved Bill Clinton. And then, of course, during the Obama years, the accusation was that I love George Bush. And don't you know he started a war illegally? I was right. like, yeah, I've written about that. I don't think you have. Anyway, it's 
Yeah, that's you're exactly right. One of the worst things about this tribal false left-right dichotomy is that as soon as you say you hold one position on one subject, they just assume that they know every single other thing you think. And that's probably because for a lot of people, that's true. Yeah, just- I was going to say that there is a lot. Like, was it Tyler Cowen that did that? I think so. Like, there shouldn't be a correlation between what do you think about raising the minimum wage? Will that impact teen employment? Right. And what do you think about humans increasing their emission of carbon dioxide? Do you think that'll increase global temperatures? And how In do you theories, feel about sex work? <laughs> yeah. Those three things should what? have nothing to do with each other. And right. yet you're right. There would probably be a pretty strong correlation between people's views on all three of those areas. And then so that, that is showing something. Yeah, it's weird. All right. So how do we fix it, Adam? Just get people to watch this video. And if enough, enough of them do, the whole thing will be solved, right? Yes. But. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think what you do. The way you've conducted your life is, I don't want to get all Jordan peterson here, but I think going out into the world and speaking the truth as you see it in the best moral way possible that is the only cure to any of this. Just literally go be your best person, lead through example, speak the truth, and then if we're a worthwhile species, we'll figure it out. And if we're not, we'll all glow with nuclear fire and maybe the cockroaches will do better in a million years. Okay, so that's good. But yeah, let me mention too some things. As you say, for sure, if you identify some of these traits or whatever, try to make sure you're not participating in it. And then I would also, something I'm trying to get better at is when I see people on my team doing something that I know is not quite right, like I speak up more about it as opposed to before I might have just like, oh yeah, I would never say that, but let's see if something happens to him for stepping out on the limb there. That's because clearly, like people on the left, they know Paul Krugman is a complete jerk and routinely misrepresents people on the right's views on things. But a lot of them just they keep their mouth shut because they don't want they don't want to get him mad or have his his followers go after them. So I know there's things like that where people are like a lot of people. I'm sure to, to switch examples over time, the more stuff that came out we're more and more uncomfortable with Andrew Tate. And yet a lot of them probably just kept it to themselves because they knew, no, if I online say something about that guy, I'm going to have a bunch of people coming like, what are you, a beta male and that kind of stuff. And just, they don't want to deal with it. There's issues like that where, yeah, I guess maybe if more people decided to state what they thought was obvious, if it looked like, gee, the crowd seems to be going a certain way on this. Let me say something. Cause maybe there's a thousand people like me they just don't want to stick their head out, things like that. Now, you in your email, maybe the last thing here we'll touch on, though, is because you had mentioned in some areas you thought we can get around this, like in geometry and maybe some components of Austrian economics. So do you want to just elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, I was riffing on the human desire to find some firm foundation upon which to construct an edifice of things we think we know, and then therefore we can be certain that Descartes, I think, therefore, I am thing. And we do things like that when we create geometry. And Austrian economics works like that. Basic, undeniable axioms, principles upon which we can deduce a whole bunch of useful things. And I think natural rights theory also is playing that game in a very useful way. So it's not like we shouldn't try and be system builders in that way. I just think we lose the plot when we forget what the axioms are. 
and sometimes they're pretty solid like like man acts the austrian original axiom and sometimes they're not and whatever assumptions we make with euclidean geometry we should never forget what the assumptions were and that it's just a mental construct and if we try and apply it in the in reality and something comes up screwy we shouldn't assume reality is screwy we should remember we have a mental model we're using here and I, I don't know, I just think it's an important distinction. It's like we were saying, the mainstream economists make that error. They forget that their economic models is based on a whole bunch of goofy assumptions. And then there's yeah, the climate change just, thing. Like, right. yeah, obviously, when you introduce carbon dioxide into a system, there's going to be effects. But then you build 20 models and none of them work. And you don't admit your own ignorance that something as simple as, yeah, maybe we don't really understand how clouds work fully, so we can't model them. Instead, you right. just say, well, it's just a matter of time, and you got to believe me anyway, and I'm the expert. And Yeah, and for people who don't know, just on that point specifically, because I've seen it where people will say, "What? this is basic chemistry, man. So-and-so demonstrated way back in the day and did it. And it's like, yeah, the arguments in these models are not over whether other things equal having exactly. more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere means more heat is retained. It's whether the so-called feedback effects. Exactly. Right? It's like second and third order. And like you say, with like, oh, gee, if there's more moisture, there's more clouds. And so maybe it retains heat, but then the clouds reflect the incoming sunlight. So it's not. And yeah, at least as when, five years ago, I don't know if they've made refinements since then, but they weren't even sure what the sign was on the clouds, <laughs> meaning they didn't know if on net cloud, more clouds meant hotter or lower temperatures. And whatever the sign is sure. now, that might change because it's an enormous right. system with multiple right. feedback right. loops, right. both positive and negative, and as temperatures change, those can flip around. Yeah. Come on, guys, quit pretending. <laughs> I know you don't want to waste your life on a, on a nonsense uh, pursuit, but don't pretend you know stuff you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but yeah, but then even there, like you say, with the building stuff on terms of axiomatic foundations, just to, I'll link folks to my Bob Murphy Show episode. Early, it was early on. It was like in the first 20 episodes, I think, maybe in the first 10 on Girdle's incompleteness theory, where just one. showing that, yeah, just to summarize again, folks, in case you didn't hear, math was, people thought, surely, if there's an area where we can be quite rigorous and just know what are our assumptions that step-by-step -step build up this edifice, it would be in mathematics. And so they said, let's just start with basic axioms that are pretty incontrovertible, and then just rules of logic and how do we start with some, certain axioms and then build theorems upon that and start doing it that way. And Girdle showed that for a sufficiently complex system that where you could contain mathematical propositions that were somewhat complicated, that every such system that was free from internal contradictions, there would necessarily be true mathematical statements that you could write in the language of that framework that you could never prove from the axioms. So, th so they would say it was consistent but incomplete. Yeah, I thought that was a great episode. And I also really liked the two bookend episodes. The guy coming on, was it Steve Patterson, his name? Yeah. That yeah, came on and said something about infinite sets is a huge nonsense problem. And I think he was onto something. And then I loved the other guy that came on and said, yes, perhaps, but these mathematical tools are also incredibly useful and you just have to be judicious. I, I thought that was a good... Yeah, so that was Ian Dieters, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was a good way of tacking towards truth. Yes, you can create your models and delude yourself, but no, that doesn't mean throw away everything here because a lot of it is really useful. Just don't be nuts about it. 
Yeah. And to give an example, the one that always pops into mind for me about people taking their models too seriously, it's actually Scott Sumner. Is he a mainstream economist? I don't know people, but he's the godfather now of the market monetarists, Chicago school trained. And he, my favorite thing to show this is when he would talk about, oh, what happens? The reason we had sluggish real economic growth in the QE period or whatever is because the Fed wasn't letting NGDP grow fast enough. And he was saying firms, when they're setting their long-term contracts and homeowners, when they're buying, they have certain expectations of NGDP growth. And so if the Fed doesn't hit the, and I want to stop him right there and say, Scott, most people don't even know what NGDP is. No, there are no groups of people walking around signing long-term kind of buying a house with a mortgage who have expectations of NGDP growth. No, they don't. And but he was, what I mean is well, I have some pride, but Still, I was like, okay, but I think it's useful to occasionally stop you when you say demonstrably false things right. and say, just try saying true statements and see what happens. You know, <laughs> And so in his mind, it was just a shortcut to whatever. Again, it's since in my view, he's coming up with outrageous conclusions. It's possibly that it's yeah, funny. he's confusing the real world for his mind. For sure. And it's funny, our minds are so powerful in large part because we can do stuff like that, create these steps and extrapolate. And then create these models and these long chains of reason by which we can start with simple mm -hmm. things and then come up with very postulate that there's a big bang, for example. But people just so often forget along the way the assumptions that they made and, and the room for error that should be given and the difference between what you observed and what the truth is. Like we make that mistake all the time in physics, right? Because we're confused. We don't really know what's happening. We know what our experiment kicked back at us, and then we hypothesize what that actually means out there in, in the universe. And we're right about some stuff, probably wrong about a whole bunch of stuff, and we should have a bunch more humility. Mm -hmm. I don't hear a lot of humility <laughs> in that field, or, or, or many others. And actually, I, my story about Scott reminded me, so I was doing uh, like internal team training for Infineo recently, and I was given the standard argument about, I was talking about like marginal analysis and why economists think that workers in a competitive market tend to be paid their marginal product. And so I'm going through that and, oh, let's say really his marginal product is $50 an hour. And so if he's only getting paid by this employer for 40, then up to, and he's breezed through that he would, it would get end up at 50. And then somebody asked, like, as they always do, why would somebody hire him at 50 to then just earn 50? Like, what's the point? And I said, because there'd be the only logical, and, it, and really it's because well, in the model, that's where you use calculus and stuff. That's where the only logical stopping point. And I realized, actually, why don't I just make it more realistic? If there's a time element involved, then it's a much more straightforward story to say, right. if you're paying them now for something that's going to pay down the road, and the rate of return on that is 10%, but treasuries are yielding 12, then you wouldn't. And then all of a sudden, it, everything, so it's more realistic and it makes more sense to talk about it that way. And it actually opened up my eyes to some of the dynamics and what's involved there. Cause then there's, cause also too, it's like the way the original story goes, you would just hire an infinite number of workers. Right. Like if it's just pure money that you instantly get. Yeah. Whereas if anyway, I'm just, it was little things like that where somebody, like if a student had said it to me when I was teaching at the you know undergrad level, I would have just bulldozed them and kept going. But this time I actually had the humility say, he raises a good point. Like, I didn't do it on the spot. Like, later I was thinking it through. I gave him my quick professor no, answer a, and moved on. It's a but, great yeah, example like, yeah. because we use calculus to come up with the answer. But it's so useful to remember what we're really dealing with is a process over time with mm. distinct units, discrete units. And 
we should never forget that just because we use calculus because we yeah we start piling assumptions on top of absurdities. Yeah. We've been talking for quite a while, Bob. But the important thing is: Are you ready to pony up ten thousand dollars and go play the World Series of Poker next year? Not yet. <laughs> Someday in my life, maybe I would want to be good. See, the, the problem is, like, yeah, I, I like blackjack, and I think I know how to play that well. And then I love the idea of poker. I'm just not that good at it. I actually did what you were saying when I was a professor at Hillsdale. One of the frats had, like, a, a big tournament going, and I sat down at the table, and I got the first hand, and I bluffed the first hand, and everybody just let me take it. This then, game's easy. Like, a, a kid at the table that was good... <laughs> Like then called me after and then I lost and then I got knocked out. It was the kind of thing too where my wife was waiting. I really couldn't have stayed around. So I was just playing aggressively just to see like, aha, and, and I got knocked out. So that's my excuse. But well, I feel horrible question, wasting no. all this time about epistemology. I mean, I thought I had you trained up in the first 20 minutes here. I know that I shouldn't fold with a knowingly winning hand. I did. Also, you made a quick side note, but it's also a sick brag that you can, in fact, count to 21. Good job. <laughs> yes yeah no there is i did learn in high school i got a book on that where if you like keep i forget how you keep track of the three four fives and sixes that go by and then the face cards keep a count one set it's, is it's plus not, one the other's minus one yeah, yeah i used, I used to count blackjack it's fun mm -hmm. yeah it was funny. i remember the first time like my friends when i told them i was reading this book and they didn't believe me that it well they believed me that i was reading a book they didn't believe it would actually work and i remember when we were playing the, the first time and then the deck was very advantageous, and so I upped my bet. And then they're like, huh. And then all of a sudden, the dealer starts going like three tens in a row came out. And everyone's like, well, which statistically, there was no reason there should have been three tens. I got lucky. But everybody was a true believer at that point that, oh, wow, Bob can count cards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, counting cards is real, but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. that a la Rain Man, four queens are going to come flying out of the deck. Right, right. See, there's lots of them. Queen, queen. De de definitely queen. definitely exaggeration. Yeah. Definitely a slight exaggeration. <laughs> Okay, I think that's a good spot for us to wrap up here. My guest, folks, has been Adam Heyman. And if people want to, I guess you got your podcast and anything else you want to point people to if they want to hear more of your pontifications. I would advise people to check out Natural Order Podcast. We're on a little bit of a hiatus, but more content is coming soon. I'd also encourage you to join your local Libertarian Party affiliate in if you want freedom in your lifetime because the Republicans and the Democrats are screwing you. And other than that, I am on Twitter at Reraiser, R-E-R-A-Z-E-R, -E -E but I'm not very active on there. So check out the podcast, join your Libertarian Party, and go out and do good in the world. Okay. Well, thank you, Adam. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.